The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word this evening, our sermon text is coming from uh, the book of Exodus, as we continue our series there in that book, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 1 and continuing through the very end of that chapter. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 and following. This is the word of God. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh the store cities of Pythium and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel." So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because of the midwife or because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So far, the reading of God's word this evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help as we study this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that we can confess with the psalmist that as we come to your word, indeed, it is our chief delight. It is here that we find the very words of life. It is here that we see your heart for sinners such as ourselves. And it is here that we see our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray now, Father, that you would teach us this evening, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of him, and that we might glimpse his glory and be transformed by the vision of it, so that we, Father, might live faithfully before you. Show us the Savior, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin this evening by telling you a story. 
Don't get excited. It's a rather unpleasant story. It's the story of a failing empire. It's the story of an empire that found itself in decay. And it's a story about how the leaders of that empire looked upon the external threats that surrounded them and became increasingly more and more paranoid and gripped with fear. But not only the threats that were internal to them, but also some internal threats. As these leaders of this empire began to look at their vulnerable situation, their eye was attracted to a minority group that occupied a small section of their empire. They became more and more disturbed by the presence of these people to the point where their fear led them to begin to oppress them. It led them to, at first, begin to make their lives rather miserable. A little you know, concentration camp here, a little forced march there. Eventually, things escalated to the point where girls and women were being sold into slavery to other groups around this empire. Eventually, it got to the point where there was no hiding it. There was just an outright genocide against this particular group, this particular minority group. You might think to yourself for a moment, well, you're describing what we've just read in the book of Exodus. But I'm actually not describing that. I'm describing something that happened just over 100 years ago in the Ottoman Empire to a group of people known as the Armenians. And you might ask yourself, well, there are some rather striking similarities that exist between that situation and the one that we see before us this evening. And there are. But you understand that it's not just that there are some incidental things that look similar about what happened during that horrible event we call the Armenian genocide and what we see taking place in the book of Exodus, there's actually something extremely important that unifies both of these events, and that is that they have their origins in that most dangerous emotion of man, fear. Fear. You see, it was fear, fear of instability. Fear of military conquests that led the Ottoman Turks to turn against the Armenians the way they did. And it's fear that we see here written upon the face of Pharaoh in this text. It is fear. Fear of those who occupy his empire. This group that, according to the text, has done nothing wrong, but yet poses in his mind potential threat. These two things unite both of these events and they display for us something remarkable. They display for us the great danger of our fear. Particularly, they display for us the great danger of the fear of man. And as we look at our text this evening, we realize that it's not only Pharaoh who 
is fearful of the people of Israel. And it's not only the Egyptians who eventually find themselves filled with dread because of the Israelites and because of their population explosion. But it's also the midwives that we see here. These two godly Hebrew midwives who are afraid as well, aren't they? But you see, their fear is directed at a different object. And what I want us to see this evening is I want us to look at the contrast that exists in this text between these two kinds of fear. I want us to see fundamentally that we need to understand that what we fear controls how we think. It controls how we live. It controls our actions. We need to understand as we observe this passage of the text that the fear of man can lead to cowardly acts of wickedness which are, quite frankly, beyond belief. Leading even in this text to mass infancide. There's nothing more wicked in the mind of man than that. But on the other hand, the fear of God leads to courageous faithfulness to the Lord, even in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. As we look at this text this evening, I want us to see the fear of man on the one hand and the fear of God on the other We're, of course, going to see many other things, but it's important for us to recognize this contrast, these two contrasting fears which lay at the heart of this passage. And as we behold these two contrasting fears, for us to embrace what one theologian calls the soul of godliness and to become the who seek to cultivate in our own lives the fear of the Lord. That's what I want us to do this evening. Begin to look with me at the text if you at verse 8, and we'll begin to consider how the fear of man leads to wickedness. In verse 8, we see that a new king has arisen in Egypt. The text tells us now there arose a new king over Egypt. And it goes on, importantly, to note, who did not know Joseph. Now, this is a a very short verse that is packed with a, a lot of contents. And it's, it's a part of the text that commentators spill a lot of ink on because there's a lot, of, a lot of discussion about what exactly is taking place here. Where is this new king coming from? There are really two possibilities here. Possibly, he's a king that has come up in the dynasty that was already in existence when Joseph and the Israelites came into Egypt. That's one possibility. I think that's unlikely, though. As we see, this king doesn't seem to have any idea about Joseph, and he doesn't seem to have any sympathy towards the Israelites. He doesn't seem to understand what is the precursor to this passage in the salvation of not only the Israelites, but also the Egyptians by the hand of God through his servant Joseph. It's probably more likely, then, in light of this verse, to suggest that this king is not only another king in this same dynasty, but this is another dynasty. That there's been some sort of regime change in Egypt at this time. And that accounts for the reality that this new king, he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't remember the history that the Egyptians have with the Hebrews. 
he does not have any sympathy for the people of Israel. On the other hand, he has a great deal of animosity. And we see that as the text continues in verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too much for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the lands. And here we get an insight into the thinking of this new Pharaoh. We see that not only does he not have any sympathy for the people of Israel, he sees them as a threat. He sees them as a concerning reality of his inherited geopolitical situation. As he looks upon the people of Israel, he can see nothing good. All he can see is a vulnerability for his own nation. Again, he does not remember how this nation that he's now ruling in the past has been saved by this group of people. That knowledge is faded, or perhaps he never had it, but either way, he sees them as a threat. And you see that he immediately sets sets about to inculcate this fear, this concern that he has in his He begins to stir up animosity immediately. Come, he says to his own people, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And he goes on to lay out his particular concerns there as the text continues. If war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and they're going to fight against us. Here we see what he has in mind. He thinks, well, hey, these are people who come from the north. These are people who come from an area which Egypt is constantly being invaded from in the ancient Near Eastern world. And he sees quite logically that perhaps there are some more people like that out there. And if they come to attack us, these Hebrews, they're just going to join in with this army. And they're going to bring about our defeat. And he says, interestingly at the end there, that not only might they bring about their defeat, but they also might escape. Now it's interesting, we could look at that and we could think to ourselves, well, it seems like his problem would be solved if the people of Israel just weren't there anymore. So why is he concerned about them escaping? Again, this probably is related to his concern about his national security. He probably and rightly thinks that these are people who come from just north of him. And if they go back up there, they might establish their own kingdom. And they know very well the wealth and the riches of Egypt. So perhaps they'll come back and attack us. Or perhaps it's when they escape, they become a powerful kingdom which disrupts our trading. There could be any number of reasons why he's concerned about the people of Israel at this point escaping. Could even be that they've become such an important part of the empire, the nation, that they would cause uh, an economic depression if they left. But whatever the case, he's concerned for two, or he's, his concern is twofold. He's concerned that they might be a danger militarily, and he's concerned that they might escape. And he fans the flame of this concern in his own people. And in verse 11, we see the plan that he concocts. Verse 11 tells us, Therefore they, meaning the Egyptians, at the direction of Pharaoh, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
The text continues to tell us that they, they set the Israelites to slave labor. And they begin to construct store cities here, it says to us. Again, this probably points to the reality that the Pharaoh is extremely nervous about his political situation. A store city, while it's not obvious here, is a city that contains, most likely, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East a garrison of soldiers, as well as all of their supplies for warfare. In other words, what he's doing is he's seeking to put these threats, these people who are in his empire, to work not only so that he can keep them busy so that they can't plot against him, but also so that they can begin the process of fortifying his nation so that it can't be attacked from outside. Again, here we see the paranoia of Pharaoh. But as we look at that section of the text and we see how the Egyptians begin to afflict God's people, we see in verse 12 what the response of God is to that affliction. Look what happens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. There's a great irony here, isn't there? Pharaoh comes and he looks upon Israel and he sees the blessing which God has been bestowing upon them. We marked that last week in verse 7. As we read in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We made a note of the reality that this language reaches back to the beginning of Genesis and reminds us that what's happening here, in the words of one commentator, is the, the nucleus is developing of what would become God's new creation people. And it's important for us to realize that this is happening because of the hand of God. He's told Abram all the way back in Genesis 15 that he's going to build these people into a great nation. He's told Abram that in his people, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He's been telling all the people of, of God from the very beginning of his covenant dealings with them that he's going to make them into a great nation. And here he is doing that. And in response to that, Pharaoh arises and tries to suppress God's blessing on his people. And as he does so, God responds. There's an irony here. The more the Egyptians suppress God's people, the more they grow, the more they expand, and the more afraid the Egyptians become of them. We see that there. They're gripped with fear. And you can imagine what this would feel like if you were trying to deal with a problem like this. And the more you try to get rid of these people, the more they multiply, the more they spread around, the more of a threat they became. And we see that their plan is failing. So what do they do? This is the temptation of all uh, governments throughout history, I believe, here. When their social program fails, they decide to do the rational thing and double down. So here in verse 13, they do just that. 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We see the intensification of what is taking place earlier in these verses. We see now they have ramped up their oppression a notch, haven't they? Maybe several notches. They have placed heavier burdens upon them. They have sought to be crueler to them. They have sought to work them harder. And we're going to see, as we continue in the text, that this doesn't work either. It doesn't work either. But it's important for us to note at this point the trajectory of Pharaoh's thinking here. You note what he's doing here. He starts out concerned, no doubt. And as he continues to implement solutions to this problem of the Israelites' power and numbers in the land of Egypt, he gets more and more concerned. His fear increases. The people become more and more alarmed as they see what's taking place here. As they look upon their attempts to to foil, as it were, the blessings of God, they begin to see that it's not going to be as easy as they thought it was going to be. And we're going to see in just a few moments that this is going to lead them to take extreme measures. It's going to lead them to commit some of the most wicked acts imaginable. But it's important for us to stop for a moment and make a note of what is happening. We know from the rest of Scripture that these attacks that are being brought upon God's people are futile. Think about what Pharaoh is doing here. He is, in a sense, beginning to embody that tension that has existed since Genesis chapter 3 between the seed of the woman and the seed, the offspring of the servant. He is seeking to snuff out the line of the covenant of grace, the line from which our Savior will come. But you notice that he is like a man. I want you to imagine this for a moment. He's like a man standing on railroad tracks, seeking to stop a freight train with his bare hands. You see what's happening here. The more the enemies of God's people seek to oppress them, the more God blesses them. The more intensely the persecution comes against the Israelites, the more God adds to their number, the more He expands them. And it's important for us to see tonight, friends, that this is not a one-off event in the history of God's people. This is a constant story. From the beginning of the covenant of grace until its completion, it will be the case that wherever the church of Jesus Christ faces persecution, wherever it faces attempts to snuff it out, God will work in such a way that the church will continue. His attempts are futile. And the reason for that is obvious, isn't it? Paul tells us this, right? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Pharaoh is going to learn that lesson throughout the book of Exodus. But he hasn't quite learned it yet. But we see it. We see the pattern beginning to develop. The earlier church fathers, particularly Tertullian, used to say that the seeds of the church, they grow in the blood of the martyrs. 
And we see that that's not something new to the New Testament. It's something that God loves to do. He loves to demonstrate his strength in the face of challenges to his people. And that ought to cause us to be encouraged this evening, friends, as we look at this text. But there's something else I want us to note about this text. This text represents something of the beginning of a spiral downward for Pharaoh and for the Egyptians. We've already noted some of that. This fear that they have, it's, it's getting out of control. They're beginning to be consumed by their paranoia, particularly Pharaoh here. And we note that what began as fear is about, in the next text, or even now already, to develop into something else. What began as fear is developing into hate. This is an important thing for us to understand. This is something that is fairly universally recognized just from observing history. Fear often gives way to hatred. And hatred ultimately gives way to murder. That's where we're headed here. There's a reason why Christ connects these two things. If you hate your brother, what are you doing? You're committing murder. Well, here we see. We see how the fear of man, how his paranoia, how his desire for the control of his own destiny leads him to oppress the Israelites, leads him first to set them to hard labor, then leads him to enslave them. And now as we transition from these first verses to the second group of verses, starting at chapter or verse 15, it leads him to murder. You see the spiral that is taking place here in the mind and in the heart of Pharaoh. And we ought to be friends, that as much as we would like to write this off as some unique aspect of Pharaoh, or maybe even as we look at real world, or not real world, but more modern examples of this and things like the Armenian genocide, we we might want to look at those things and say to ourselves, well, there's just something that genetically predisposed those people to be mass murderers, but there's not. You see, the seeds of that kind of activity is planted in the heart of every sinner. It's subtle, but it's important for us to recognize here how sin begets sin for the Pharaoh. And it's important for us to see that in contrast to what we read, which follows. Look with me, if you will, at verse 15, and we'll begin to consider there not how the fear of man leads to wickedness, but how the fear of God leads to courageous faithfulness on the part of these two Hebrew midwives. Then the king of Egypt, verse 15, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was Shipra and the other Hua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter... She shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. Now you note here what we've already made note of that Pharaoh has now gone from seeking to 
uh, cause the Israelites' population to decrease by secondary means, if you will, by uh, setting them to hard labor, by keeping them occupied, by working them to death, basically. Now he's turned to open murder. But even here, it seems that he desires this to take place in secret. You know, he goes to the midwives. He goes to the midwives and he suggests to them that while these children are being birthed, in the midst of their births, that they would surreptitiously end the life of the male children. We're going to see that he's got one escalation yet to go here at the end of the chapter. But for the moment, it's important for us to zoom in and focus in upon these midwives and their interaction with Pharaoh. The first thing we notice about these midwives is that they're named. That's always a significant thing when we read the Old Testament. We talked about this a bit in the book of Ruth. If you remember what we talked about there from years ago, we saw a redeemer, Boaz, but we also saw another redeemer. But that redeemer refused to redeem Ruth. He refused to do his duty. And we noted there that it was significant that the author refused to say this man's name in the text. You'll notice throughout the entire book of Exodus, Pharaoh is never identified personally. Never. It causes us a lot of trouble today trying to figure out which exact Pharaoh this was. But there's a theological reason for that. You see, the author has consigned Pharaoh to the dustbin of history. He's not interested in perpetuating his name. But these two lowly Hebrew midwives, these are names worth remembering. That's significant. Shipra and Pua, these two midwives, we learn, were approached by Pharaoh. Imagine this for a moment. You have these two slave midwives. You have these two women who occupy one of the lowest rungs of society. And here comes Pharaoh, one of the greatest kings, the most powerful men in all of the Near East. And he comes and he stands before them and he tells them, when you see a male child born, kill him. But what do these two women do? Well, they don't quiver. They don't sit there in dread of Pharaoh. They don't look at this man, this great man, with the power to banish them, with the power to kill them. They don't look at this man and say, well, of course, we'll do whatever he wants us to do. They don't do that. And they don't do that because they recognize that they serve a king greater than Pharaoh. They recognize that while Pharaoh, ironically, might be scared to death of his own slaves... He might be dreading in his heart the possibility that these people who are are so weak, who are so uh, uh, suppressed, might rise up against him. In, in, In opposition to that, these two women, who have no power at all, they stand bold in the face of this man. And they do so because they fear the Lord God of Israel. They do so because they recognize that no matter who the king, no matter how great he might be, no matter how large his army, no matter how big his bank accounts, 
comparison to the God of all the universe, he is a puny and pathetic despot. They fear God. And because they fear God, they don't follow through with what our confession identifies as an unlawful command. They realize that they owe allegiance, first and foremost, to the king of heaven, not the king of Egypt. We see their fear of God here. And as we see their fear of God, it's important for us, brothers and sisters, to pause for a moment and make a note of of what's happening. You see, the fear of God in these two Hebrew midwives is expelling from them the fear of man. And that's a principle that applies to us today just as much as it applied to them then. You see, friends, when someone fears God, they are not captive to the fear of men. No matter if they're the schoolyard bully children or if they're the most powerful president, dictator, what have you on the earth. The fear of God drives away the fear of man. It's interesting to think for just a few moments about what it means to fear God. I think we see one aspect of it displayed very clearly in the text for us. We've noted that there is a fear that can be described as dread. We've seen that with the Egyptians. It's a different word there, but I think the concept is true enough. There is a fear that can be described as dread. And and that fear is not just a fear that uh, can... That can be had inappropriately, as it were. It's not just a fear that people can have of man, but there's a righteous sense in which we can fear God in this way, too. There's a right sense in which we have a fear of God, which is motivated by the fact that we are sinful human beings and that He's the God of all the universe. This is the kind of fear that Christ talks about when He tells us in the Gospels not to fear Him who can kill the body but him who can throw the body and the soul into hell. There is a right sense in which we fear God in that way. And there's also a sense of fear in which we might describe, or what we might describe as reverence, as what we might describe as awe. A sense in which we respect God for who he is, for what he's done. A sense in which we look at God reverentially. But here, it's, it's clear that these midwives have both of these things. But importantly, they see that, yes, terrible things could happen to them because they get on the wrong side of Pharaoh, but they realize that it would be much, much worse to transgress the law of an eternal, all-powerful God. So we see that there is the fear of God displayed in these two women. They know who to, uh, to, to give their final allegiance to. And we see as the text continues that they create a plan. They feared God, and because they feared God, they didn't do what he said. Verse 18 tells us, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? 
Well, there, there, it's interesting to think about how long it would have taken Pharaoh to recognize that they weren't obeying his command. It's possible that in this day and age, before we had uh, gender-specific clothing at a very young age, that it would have taken him a while. Perhaps it took him a year or two to realize uh, that these women aren't obeying me. But when he realizes it, he summons them to himself. And so he calls them and he, he speaks to them. And the midwives respond to Pharaoh's question. They, they give him this story. They say to him, because the Hebrew women are not like the Pharaoh, or not like the, the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And this is an interesting section of the text, isn't it? Because they don't exactly tell Pharaoh the truth, do they? But look what happens next. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And so this raises an interesting question for us. Did God reward the lie of these midwives? It is a lie. Now, many commentators note that it may not be as big of a lie as we think it is, because it's actually the case that there are different cultures, if you will, of childbirth. And it was the case that the Egyptians were particularly um, prone to have midwives present throughout all of the birthing, uh, but other nations were not as present to, or not as uh, likely to do that. So there's a possible that it's not as big of a, of, a, of a stretching of the truth as we think it is. But we do know that there is some deception that's happening here, right? Because we know why the midwives didn't obey Pharaoh. And fundamentally, it wasn't because it wasn't because people were giving birth before they could get to them. It was because they feared God. It's it's a question that puzzles many people. Are the midwives rewarded because of their lie? I would say this: No, they're not. I like what one author says: the people. The male children of Israel are saved, not by the midwife's lie, but because they refuse to carry through on the unlawful command of Pharaoh. The question remains, though, why does God bless them the way he does? Well, I think the text tells us there in verse 21. It's because the midwives feared God that he blessed them. Now, This answer might not be totally satisfying for you, but I would also note that it is the case that even our best works are imperfect works. Everything we do in this life is tainted by sin. The the midwives did not save the male children in Israel by lying to Pharaoh. They saved themselves by lying to Pharaoh. But nonetheless, God blessed them. And he blessed them not because of their lie, but because of their faith and because of their fear of the Lord. Their fear of the Lord. And you notice in keeping with the rest of the text, there's great irony here, isn't there? God blesses these midwives. How does he bless these midwives? Well, this whole plan, this whole time, has been to try to keep the Hebrews from having children. So what does God do? Well, he rewards these midwives for protecting the children of Israel by giving them children. Again, we see 
God coming in and undermining Pharaoh at every single point. It's interesting that many midwives at this time would have been barren women. That's why they were midwives. They had a lot of time on their hands. They didn't have women of their, or, uh, children of their own to care for. So it's quite possible that these, these women had given up on having children. But the Lord blesses their faithfulness and their fear of God by providing them children and by continuing to extend his people, his kingdom, in this embryonic stage. This is too much for Pharaoh, isn't it? Look at what he does in verse 22. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The spiral is complete at this point. We've reached the bottom. We've seen Pharaoh try to suppress the people of Israel with hard labor, with slavery, with ruthless slavery. We've seen him surreptitiously try to end the lives of the male children before they even get started. And now we just see him take the gloves off and do maybe what he's wanted to do the whole time and begin to drown the sons of Israel en masse in the Nile. You notice that it's no longer the Hebrew midwives he's asking to kill these children. It's his own people. This is an open thing. He's requesting that the Egyptians, upon seeing a small Hebrew son, would immediately kill him. This is the depths, friend, of depravity. And we've seen how he got here. We've seen how he got here. We've seen how his fear led to his hate, led to mass murder. It's a story that we've seen over and over again in human history, really. It's a story that should alarm us about the state of society, but it should also alarm us about the state of every human heart. Left to our own devices apart from the Lord, without his restraints, we would be like Pharaoh, allowing the... the sin that we have in our hearts to continue to be fanned until we were willing to commit atrocities such as this. But as we've noted throughout the passage, there is a lot of irony here. And here in verse 22, we get an indication of what will come in the book, don't we? Think about what Pharaoh's last ditch effort here is. He's decided, well, the gloves are coming off. I am sick of the people of Israel. From now on, we're just going to drown them in the Nile. And you can almost imagine what's going through the mind of the Lord here. I can hear Psalm 2 being sung in the back of my mind. God sits in heaven and he laughs. Because think about what God is going to do in just a few chapters. God is going to drown Pharaoh. And he's going to drown his entire army. He's not casting helpless infants into a river. He's destroying an entire army by submerging them under a sea. 
God is not going to be mocked here. He's not going to be mocked. And we see, even as we begin chapter 2, the final and most ultimate, in a sense, response that God gives to this escalation of Pharaoh's evil. Because what's going to happen in the very next chapter? We're going to see the birth of Moses. We're going to see the arrival of the deliverer of Israel. We are going to see one appear who will bring Pharaoh to his knees. And after that, we'll wipe him and his kingdom to an extent off the map. Friends, God will not be mocked. And here, we again are reminded that even in the wickedness that we see on display here on the part of Pharaoh, God is constructing, he is working, he is providentially ordering things in the background so that he might display his ultimate glory for his people in their deliverance and in their salvation. And of course, as we consider the arrival of of the deliverer of Israel from the Egyptians, we cannot help, friends, but to remember God's ultimate answer to the enemies of his church and his kingdom. What we see here is the beginning of a story that points us, that points us to the arrival of our Savior as well. It points us forward, friends. It points us forward past the types and the shadows of the book of Exodus to a time where another king, a Jewish king, will turn against the male children of his own people who will seek to exterminate all of the children around Bethlehem to eradicate the coming of a king, of a deliverer who will bring about the end of his false kingdom. It points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. It points us forward to the ultimate, the ultimate deliverance of God's people in the Messiah. And I hope that here in this chapter, even as we very, we just begin to touch the surface of the book of Exodus, you're already seeing something of the Savior. Even as we look at the wickedness of Pharaoh and at God's response to his evil, I hope you're already beginning to see a more clear vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will not only bring about the destruction of the temporal kingdom of Egypt, but who will eventually, friends, bring an end to all the enemies of our God who will bring an end to all our enemies as well. Friends, this is where we need to be looking, even here, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. But as we consider how we see our Savior here, I also hope that we see the importance of knowing the danger and the power of fear. I hope we see here clearly that while the fear of man can lead one to the most wretched, cowardly acts of disobedience to God's law, 
that fear of God can put courage in the heart of the believer that cannot be taken away by anyone. And friends, may it be true of every one of us here this evening that as we face the persecutions, perhaps the increasing persecutions of this world, that we will fear God and not man, and that we will stand firm in the truth of God's word, willing even to confront the most powerful forces of this world, never failing to trust that our God is able and that if he is for us, who indeed can be against us? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shows us the danger of sin, and it shows us the glory of the gospel. We pray, O Father, that you would fill our hearts with fear, fear of you, that we would possess that soul of godliness in ourselves, that we would know what it means to have our priorities in this world controlled by the reality that you demand our allegiance above all of it. Give us courage, we pray, to be faithful in this present evil age. We ask it in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.